let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, we pray that as you speak to us, uh, you would shake us and change us. Uh, you would shake our puny and tiny and inadequate pictures of what you are like. You will shake us out of our little worlds. You would refine us that we might be useful to you and for your purposes. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great problems with explaining Christianity to people in Australia is very often their preoccupation with the good things they do. People think God will let them into heaven because they've been good. I don't go to many funerals, but it's a number of funerals I've been at. Wherever the question of the afterlife comes up, people are very quick to reassure each other that old Fred was a pretty good bloke. You know, he, he never hurt anyone, he never robbed a bank or committed murder, never stole anything from work unless it was absolutely necessary and he really needed it. And they talk like that, don't they, because they think what counts when it comes to where old Fred is gone. Well, those are the things that determine where he is. Those are the things that determine whether you're in God's good books. If you try and share the gospel with people, a common response, uh, they begin talking about, is this your experience, the religious things they've done or the charity work they're involved in? It's the same thinking. Uh, what being a Christian, being right with God is all about. But the Bible tells us, Christians believe, the idea that you get to heaven by doing good things well, couldn't be further from the truth. No one is good enough. The only way you can be right with God is by being forgiven. God accepts us not because of the things we do, but in spite of the things we've done, through what Jesus has done for us. He accepts us as a free gift. Uh, there won't be any good blokes in heaven, only bad blokes who've been forgiven. But we end up with a problem, don't we? The trouble is, once you've smashed down the idea that doing good is the way you get to heaven, well, once you become a Christian, why bother doing anything good at all? can be the first question that new Christians will ask when they grasp for the first time that they are saved by grace, saved as a gift. Maybe it's a question that you're wrestling with. If I don't have to do anything to be accepted by God, then I don't have to do anything to be accepted by God. How would you answer that question? Since I'm forgiven regardless of how I've lived, if Jesus' death pays it all, as Christians, where does obedience fit in? Why should I struggle to say no to sin when sometimes it's just so hard? Why not give in to that temptation today if God will forgive me tomorrow? I want you to see if you can answer that question for yourself. By the time we get to the end of our, our time today in the book of Exodus, as we look at the, the next section of the story and look at the way God does things with his Old Testament people in the book of Exodus, as we walk from Israel out of the land of Egypt, 
to Mount Sinai where God gathers them as his people. You've got your Bibles open? Exodus 14? Let's go. You were here last week. We saw that God prized open Pharaoh's grip with ten devastating plagues. He set his people free from slavery to lead them out of Egypt to his promised land. But as we pick up the story, if you're following the reading from chapter 13, verse 17, if you've got an NIV like mine, the heading is Crossing the Red Sea. Uh, we pick up the story in chapter 13, verse 17. The Bible tells us God could take them to the promised land by a quick and easy route. But he doesn't. If you look in chapter 17, it tells us they aren't ready yet to trust God and to face the nations who live in the promised land. So God helps them out so they'll learn to trust him. God helps them out by leading them into a totally hopeless situation. A complete dead end with the sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his army behind. And he tells the Israelites, if you look at chapter 14, verse 13, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. In the Old Testament, the idea of being still and know that be still and know that I am God, it's not some mystical experience of praying quietly and really concentrating. And if I just close my eyes tight enough and screw my fists up just enough, there'll be some sensation of God's presence in the midst of the stillness. No. It means not by your effort, but trusting God to do it for you. See that here? Chapter 14, 13. Not what you will do. Just be still. Trust. Watch how God will deliver you. And sure enough, here on the edge of the sea, they do nothing. And God does it for them. He, he parts the water. Huge masses on either side. You know when you drive up the freeway from Sydney to Newcastle, you know the big cuttings that you see? You know, towering sandstone walls on either side? God piles up the water and Israel passed through. Then Moses puts out his hand again and the waters swallow Pharaoh and crush his army. I don't know what you would have done if you'd been there and seen that. But freed at last from slavery. Here on the edge of the sea, the first thing they do with their, their new freedom well, if you turn the page and look at the start of chapter 15, we see a scene of worship, praising the God who has saved them. At the edge of the water, they sing. I'll bet they did it with everything their lungs could give. See chapter 15, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. You look in verse 3, remember, remember his name we looked at last week, Yahweh the Lord? He has lived up to his name. The Lord, Yahweh, is a warrior. No one gets in his way. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and armies he has hurled into the sea. And the song goes on celebrating God's rescue of his people. 
But easily missed in verse 2 is a really important idea. You see, they've been set free from their chains for a reason. They've been saved from slavery for a purpose, to praise and honour the God who has rescued them. You see verse 2? The Lord is my strength and my song. You get a sense of what that's saying? It's like a canary that only knows one tune. The only song they want to sing from now on, their song will be about the God who has so amazingly saved them. They live from now on to praise him. Very important idea. You see, God set the people of Israel free from their chains. Not so they could wander wherever they want. Settle in whatever country they chose. But so they would be his. And he could take them to his promised land. To dwell with him. And enjoy him and live with him. And it's always the Bible's logic. You see, the thing that says, well, sure God saved me, but boy, it doesn't give him the right to tell me how to live. If you're a Christian here today, uh, the New Testament picture, we aren't slaves who have been set free from our chains so we can go off and do whatever we want, engineering, commerce, whatever you choose. You've been bought at a great price. When God saves you, he owns you. Sure, no longer a slave to sin. You belong to a new master whose service is perfect freedom. Save not just to sing his praises, but worship him in all you do. You see, God doesn't come into our lives. God, Jesus didn't come and die and forgive you so you could say, oh, great, I'm forgiven, and go on and live as though nothing had changed. But he came and died and forgave us that we might enter into a relationship with him that would change everything about us. And you see that idea right through this song in chapter 15. They not only thank God and look back to what he's done in rescuing them here in the first half of the song, but around about verse 13, about halfway through, the whole tone of the song swings. From looking back, they now turn forward to where they're headed, the promised land, to live with God. See verse 13? In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. As the people he has rescued, they see their future in terms of living with God, serving and honouring him. Now, the route to the promised land, they know only too well is going to be a very difficult journey. They're going to tiptoe across the backyards of a whole lot of very powerful nations, people who could destroy them or make them slaves all over again. But if you look in verse 15, they say the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm they will be as still as stone until your people pass, O Lord. You see, just as God piled up the waters as still as stone, as his people passed through, God will terrify the nations. They too will stand as still as stone while his people travel safely through to be with God. 
as the song comes to an end, you can almost feel them straining ahead, longing for the future that God has chosen them for. So with that picture in mind, the thing that happens next in the story is absolutely staggering. A series of events. If you look from chapter 15, verse 22, almost straight away, I mean, there's no water to drink as they travel in the desert. And so they begin to grumble against their God. Moses instructs, God instructs Moses and water is provided and you know, surely the lesson is, oh, well, God's going to provide for you. He's committed to you. You don't have to question that. But then if you look at the start of chapter 16, they grumble again. This time they need food and so they whinge and whine. They complain to Moses, but it's made clear for us in verse 8, chapter 16. It is God they are unhappy with. It's astounding, isn't it? I mean, with the mud from the Red Sea still on their boots, with the strain of their song barely finished, Yahweh before whom the nations tremble, the voices that had praised him at the water's edge are now lifted in anger against him. But it gets even worse. If you look in chapter 16, verse 3, they even say... Oh, that we could be back in Egypt. We sat, round, we, sat, we sat round pots and ate all the food we wanted. And you see what they're saying? They wish they'd never been saved, that God had left them alone. They longed for things to be how they were before he came along and ruined everything. But can you tell me, if you've been here in the last couple of weeks as we've looked at Exodus, is there something not quite right here? Do you remember how Exodus began? Is that what Egypt was like? I mean, they were beaten by cruel slave masters, forced to make brick without straw, drowned their children in the night. Their lives were bitter and they cried out to God. But now they talk, you know, like Egypt was some kind of club med holiday. There was some resort where they sat around the pool drinking fluffy ducks. They've somehow completely deceived themselves about what life was like before they were saved. But you know, even in the face of their grumbling, their rejection of, of all he's doing for them, God continues to be generous. You look at chapter 16, verse 11, he sends quail you know those tasty little birds you get at Thai restaurants, you know? Tastes like chicken but costs twice as much. <laughs> well, God home delivers. Quail in the evening. And every morning, manna. And we're told, you know, cakes that taste like honey. Now, can I say, that's my kind of breakfast. You can keep your high-fibre muesli, you know, with the extra bran. Cakes that taste like honey in the morning. Surely the lesson is, trust God. He will richly provide. You know, he's not putting them on army rations, is he? It's not half-cooked broccoli and parsnips. It's quail in the evening and cake every morning. But things only get worse. God says, trust me and I'll provide food every day. 
Only gather what you need. Don't hoard what you know, you know for the next day. It will be there. Trust me. Every day I will provide. Look in chapter 16, verse 20. What do they do? They have no intention of trusting God. They anxiously hoard all they can for the next day because God might let them down. God might decide to get stingy. God might not deliver on what he's promised. Complaint, distrust, disobedience. It's a pattern that recurs over and over and over in the book of Exodus. Even as God richly blesses them, complaint, distrust, disobedience. But you know, before we, I think, shake our heads too much, we need to really ask, are we really that different? You see this side of Jesus, if you're a Christian here today, God has rescued us, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, from slavery to sin and eternal judgment. Now there's something to sing about. And he gave from heaven, not cake and quail, but the only son he loved so much. You don't get much more richly blessed. You cannot be much more richly loved than that. But how do we respond? You see, if Israel longing for Egypt, and it strikes us as really dumb, what about when we sin? You see, when you became a Christian, you were saying, I want God to rescue me from sin. I want to be forgiven for it. I want to go to heaven where there'll be no none. I want to be changed now that I might live with Jesus as my Lord. So as Christians, when we sin, what are we saying? Like the Israelites who, who long for Egypt. When I sin, it's as good as saying, God, I wish you'd never saved me from sin. Sin is where I want to be. I wish you had never sent your son to rescue me from it. You might want to look it up later, but in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that the story of Israel here, grumbling in the wilderness, was written for us, was put in the Bible for you and me. The water, the bread, the quail, as a picture of the even bigger mistake that we can make with the Lord Jesus. As those on whom the Bible, the New 1 Corinthians 10 says, those on whom the end of the ages has come. It is even more out of place for us to think like that. This side of the resurrection of Jesus. As those who have the spirit of Jesus in them already. We need to take this seriously. Um, just like Israel and their big pots of meat, we can deceive ourselves so easily about sin. I mean, if you stop and think, I mean, what will sin give you? What is sin really like? So I think about my life. I mean, sin makes me selfish. It's not hard to work out. Sin prompts me to lie and not be honest and open with people around me. To be self-centred rather than generous. To not be faithful or loyal. Sin destroys my relationships. Even sometimes in my words and even my actions. Because of sin, I end up hurting the people around me that I love the most. Sin makes me do things that I would never dare to share with you that I'm so ashamed of. 
Why is that so attractive? Why do we keep going back? I mean, what is it about us that we suddenly think that that's something good, that we're missing out? Can I ask you, when you face temptation, step back for a minute and think it through. I mean, where will this decision take me? Is this really the direction I want to be heading in? The road I want to step down? The kind of person I want to be becoming? Is it something good? Or am I being deceived here? We need to rethink freedom. You see, God has set us free not to do what we want, but to please him. And that is the great gift of a loving God. To be free to live how I want, that's not freedom. It's the freedom to stuff up my relationships. To live in a tiny, drab little world that has me at the centre of it, where I am the most important thing. Folks, that's not freedom. Turn on the news tonight. See the violence and injustice and hatred that comes from that kind of liberation. The great freedom is to be set free for God's service. The great freedom that comes when he works in us that we might learn to love him and serve him as he has loved us and served us. Can I say, if you don't like the idea of saying no to sin now, God changing your heart, you're really not going to enjoy heaven very much at all. The pictures we have in the Bible of heaven are never of people, you know, indulging themselves, sitting around a pool, but loving and serving God. If you don't like the idea of serving him this week, if you think there's more to life than living it for God's glory, rethink whether that's where you want to be. Should you press the button and get off the bus? You need to rethink what being a Christian is all about. And nowhere is that clearer, I think, in this section of the book of Exodus than in the final stop in the wilderness journey. If you want to turn to chapter 19. As God gathers his people around him at Mount Sinai and gives to them his law. Now, you might be tempted to think that this is the the downside of the arrangement. God giving them his rules, that, that keeping the law is the bitter pill Israel must swallow for all the good things they get. You know, it's the veggies you have to eat before you get the ice cream afterwards. But when we think like that, I think it just shows we've only begun to understand about the way God does things. Here in Exodus and right through the Old Testament, the law is the way to life. The Psalms keep falling over themselves, competing to tell us it is a sweet and good thing that refreshes the soul. God's commands are at the heart of the privilege of being his people. Luke chapter 19, verse 5. God reminds them, although the whole earth is mine, this is about to give the law, the big theme right through the book of Exodus, God rules everything, God owns everything, although the whole earth is mine, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. There's a passion in the way God talks here. It's like a man proposing to a woman. There might be many possible partners in the world, but it's you I want to marry, to have eyes for no one else. To you and you alone I will be devoted. And as he gives them the law, I hope you noticed, he gives his commands 
after he has rescued them. That's really important. You see, God doesn't say, be good and then I'll save you. That's, what my, that's my law. That's what it's about. Be obedient and you might just make the grade. You don't obey God in order to be saved. You obey God because he has saved you. Now that he has made us his friends, his people, his commands tell us how to love him and thank him, how to express our gratitude for all that he has done. Imagine a, a girl who might say to, to a guy she's thinking about going out with, look, I'll go out with you if you bring me chocolates every week for a month. Now, once a week for a whole month. How'd you like that, guys? She lays down a condition beforehand. I won't enter into a relationship with you until you comply to my conditions. But now imagine a couple. They're already deeply in love. And he finds out she likes chocolates. What's he going to do? He will love nothing more than to bring her the things she likes. Not a condition for entering the relationship. He just wants to do what pleases her. Do you see why God gives his commands? The relationship is established. He gives the gift of his commands so we can know how to love him. Now these commands in the book of Exodus were for the people of the Old Testament. And many of them don't apply to us today, this side of Jesus. But the principle is still true. When God commands, he is telling us about the things he loves the things that are important to him and that he treasures. I don't know if you've read the Ten Commandments that way before, but it really is God revealing the deep desires of his heart. I love it when children honour their parents. I love it when people are honest with each other. I love it when marriage partners are faithful. He's spilling his guts here. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. He shares with his people what matters most. And if you think about that, you see, imagine you came over to my place and there on the, the shelf was a vase, you know, standing there. There's not a vase there, it's all right, but just imagine that for a moment. And I explained to you that this vase was very important to me. It had lots of sentimental value given to me by my grandmother and, you know, very, very special. Imagine I told you all these things about this vase and as soon as I left the room, you took it and smashed it into a million pieces. Now, if you couldn't imagine doing that with my vase, what's actually happening when we sin? You see, the God who has bared his heart with us, who has shared with us the things that mean the most, has given us his commands, but we take the thing he loves and break it. Can I say, if you think you must be good to get into heaven, you are completely mistaken. But if you think your obedience is unimportant, then you're even more mistaken. Nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more at the heart. God has saved you and I for a purpose, for the privilege of being the people who will praise and honour him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be people who are wise about sin, 
Help us to see the foolishness of life lived without you, who are not deceived by the things that sin promises but cannot deliver. Heavenly Father, thank you that you don't just forgive us, that we might live life as though nothing had changed, but you long to set us free from our selfishness and sin. Heavenly Father, thank you that you invite us into a relationship with you. You reveal to us your commands that we might know you and love you and live lives that honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.